Hello and welcome everybody. My name is Ryan. My name is Heather. And today we are here on the wonderful Confidence Through Cabaret podcast with a really awesome guest speaker. We're really excited. Uh, we have from Sensual Potential, activist and sex positive, uh, sex activist and sexologist, the amazing Rochelle Menzies. Hi Rochelle, how you doing? I am very well and thank you so much for having me on Ryan and Heather. Oh, thank you for joining us today. It's really such an uh, such an honor to have you with us. Um, we're really big fans of your work with Central Potential, and uh, yeah, we're so excited to be featuring you today. So thank you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. <laughs> Um, so we'd love to just sort of get stuck straight in and talk a little bit about you and your practice. So give us all the stuff. <laughs> Who, the, what, the, where, the, where, the, when. Okay. So, as you said, my name is Rochelle. I'm located currently in Tasmania in Australia, the little island at the bottom, but I've spent most of my time in the warm depths of Queensland. And I graduated with my master's in sexology in 2018. Um, I've had a very, very long career working in women's health, drug and alcohol, and most recently as an LGBTI inclusion consultant for Queensland at the AIDS Council. Um, so I moved to Tasmania, went into private practice and worked out very quickly that it's a bit like a small town. People need to know you. So um, picked up a bit of part-time work at the AIDS Council down here, providing support to people living with HIV and hepatitis. And very slowly, my practice has been growing. So I've had a bit of an online presence even before I graduated. And um, I, one day I kind of went, every role I've had has had a sexual health component. And I'm getting a little older. And I know I probably can't work forever in the same job, even though I loved it. But I can talk about sex for the rest of my life. Nice. And I heard that there was a sexologist who was 101. And I thought, you know, I was going through menopause at the time. And I thought, I would like to talk to someone probably who had a better understanding of what I was going through uh, with a bit of lived experience. Sure. So it was like, I think that someone older would probably prefer to talk to someone who's had similar experiences. And that's when I started studying sexology and absolutely love it. <sighs> it's just been the best thing I ever did. Yeah, I, 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 I can imagine that that it just opens a whole new world of conversation and such an important conversation. I almost want to say, but I'm hesitating, I almost want to say particularly for someone who's older, but that's not true. <laughs> um, because there's a lot of things that you probably wish that you had, had known or conversations you wish you'd had when you were younger as well. Oh, gosh, yes. You know, isn't hindsight just wonderful? Oh, um, yeah. and, I, and certainly a, a lot of the work that I've been doing recently has been in the aged care sector around uh, educating staff how to support their residents, particularly in residential care, to remain sexually active. Mm. And, you know, it's particularly the younger ones that, you know, put their fingers in their ears and go, la, 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 don't want to know about it. Um, so... And it's the older ones that are going, well, that's what I want when I get older. And it is definitely, there's so much, oh gosh, if I think back to what I was as a younger person, I had no idea about anything. Thought I knew everything, but absolutely no idea. 
And it was probably not until my 40s that I really became sexually confident and worked out who I was, what I wanted, where my life was going. And that was almost like a second puberty for me. I needed to do all the things and I needed to do them yesterday. And it was a very, very steep learning curve. And um, from there, it was like, this is something that I want to know more about. And I've been very blessed to be able to share that with other people and to provide sexuality education to young people, to preschoolers. I I was an educator in schools. So anywhere from, you know, five-year-olds right through to 95-year-olds. Amazing. Amazing. I wish wish we all had that education from five. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. So what, what would you say is the number one thing, or if you had to pick one thing, I mean, you, there's probably several, that you wish you'd known? Oh, that I wish I'd known. Um, that it's not like the movies. <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. The ooing, the ahhing. You know, I can remember the first time I had sex. I was like, is that what it's about? Really? You know? Gee, that was a bit of a letdown. <laughs> yeah. But also to be open to learning new things and learning about yourself. I didn't come to my authenticity till I was 40. You know, I grew up in the 1970s. You kind of, it was the white picket fence, the 3.5 children. You had the choice as a woman of being a mother, a teacher, a nurse or a secretary. Yeah. And I was married very young and had children very young. And then at the age of 40, went, there's a whole lot more to life. And I'm actually not into men. So that was a real light bulb moment. Um, And I think if I'd been open to exploring more and maybe had gone to university younger, that I would have realised who I was and what I wanted. I would have soaked up all of that information and the diversity of life. But living in a small country town of 200 people, there was no diversity. So I didn't even realise it was an option. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah so I, I think that would be important to just be open to learning. The conversation about diversity is, is a lot bigger now anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I, I, I'm very demisexual, so I, I didn't understand, and I, I still kind of don't understand the whole kind of, uh one night stand thing i don't have a judgment of it at all but i i didn't get it and i thought that that's Mm. that's a reflection of aren't i supposed to enjoy that and actually i had that conversation with one of my children uh, a couple of months ago at christmas and uh and and he said the same thing i i don't get it and i said Mm. that but that just because just because you're you're not doing all the things you're supposed to do or that your friends are bragging about or whatever it is doesn't mean that you don't enjoy sex that's that's not the same thing Mm. Yeah, exactly. I think I love the saying, um, don't yuck my yum. So, you know, just just because you like something and someone else doesn't or they like something and you don't, that's okay. And that's part of the diversity, isn't it? Yeah. I think that's part of the beauty of the world is that we're all different and we all like different things. And as long as there's no harm to yourself or someone else, mm. then enjoy the pleasure that comes along with it. 
Mm. And that's a really good point. And it was something that was, uh, we've been meaning to sort of ask. I mean, you, you touched on the idea of um, sexual confidence um, and sexual expression earlier um, in yeah. terms of, you know, the idea of what could potentially be considered healthy. How do you define that? Because a lot of people put up barriers as to what that sort of means and how that how that has impacts on people, obviously, is quite far and wide ranging. Um, <laughs> how do you define that? So what is healthy? Yeah, what is healthy sexual attraction? Yeah, and I think it, the waters get very muddied by a lot of societal pressures and messages and the media and all of these other families and peers and schools and churches and everywhere that we get our messages can really muddy the waters as to what is right for us as individuals. Um, but I think really, you know, the bottom line is do no harm to yourself or others um legality obviously comes into that and we have these laws to protect people so that kind of does come back to the do no harm message um, consent is really important don't do something you don't want to do no matter how hot or how much you think that that person is going to like you more if you really don't want to do something don't do it and don't try and convince someone to do something because you think they should so, yeah, for each individual having autonomy around what they like and what they don't like, being able to explore pleasure in all its different realms, to remove pressure and coercion from people. I, I see a lot of clients where they put a lot of pressure on themselves. I'm supposed to do this or feel this or be this way. And then the pleasure just disappears out the window. So I think... Um, it's really important to be empowered, to be able to make informed choices, which is where the sexuality education definitely comes in, but also to have fun. Okay. I mean, sex should be fun. I mean, if we only had sex for procreation, there wouldn't be very much sex happening. <laughs> you know, the majority of sex in the world is for pleasure. It's for recreation, not procreation. <laughs> so, you know, embrace that and... Um, all of those messages that we get, those negative messages, they're the what they're what's informed shame. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of shame around around sex and sexual expression, and mm -hmm. um, and and just the opportunity to experiment, which is potentially why we don't. One of the reasons why we don't experiment um, fully. Yeah, mm, definitely. Yeah, and I think I think you know when when you think about how young people it tends to be a, a well either a mechanical so I, I used to I used to go into my children's schools when they were teenagers and say okay so what are you teaching my children in terms of sex education like are you teaching them the mechanics of how to do it are you teaching them the reasons why not to do it until you're married mm -hmm. are you teaching them like just the you know the the kind of the safety messages of you know what how you define safe sex and or or, or are you talking to them about pleasure? And none of them, all four, all four of my children, none of them talked about the pleasure of it. And, 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 no. and you mm -hmm. know, and I think that's really interesting. And that's a hard no. conversation to have with your own children because they, of course, want to pretend they know everything and it's embarrassing. <laughs> and then there's a great yeah. <laughs> amount of shame, um, which I guess, I guess is one of the advantages of, of having more experience and being older because you can, sh you can, you don't always, but you can shed some of that shame. 
Definitely, but it, it takes time. And I, I can remember um, going into schools myself and saying exactly the same thing. My daughter came home quite shocked herself at a, some of the ideas that some other kids in her class had. So I marched on down to the school and said, what are you teaching them? Uh, and you could see them tremble in their boots thinking, oh, my goodness, we're going to be in trouble, we're going to be in trouble. And they went, oh, just what's in the curriculum, this, that, this, that. I said, well, that's not good enough. You need to teach more. Mm-hmm. And that's when they invited me to come in and, and to talk to the students. And that was kind of a bit where a lot of it started for me. And this was probably back in about, oh, gosh, 2005, I guess. Or might have even been before that. No, actually, it would have been before that, probably the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, it is a difficult conversation to have. And pleasure is something we're only really hearing recently in sexuality education. Mm-hmm. But I can remember, you know, children of about 10 or 11, and they asked lots of questions at that age, we had anonymous questions that would go into a box. It would give me 24 hours to read them in case I didn't know the answer and do some research. And one of the most common questions was, is sex fun? So they would have already had two sessions around sexuality education. So they knew the ins and outs. And basically we were about teaching the facts and it was up to the family to teach the morals and values. Mm-hmm. And they were kind of like, well, is it fun? And my response was always, well, if it wasn't, we wouldn't keep doing it. Yeah. It's yeah. supposed to be fun. Yeah. Otherwise, we wouldn't go back for more. And then we'd, there'd be no more humans. Yeah. yeah. But isn't it interesting because a lot of the sex educators are, you know, very often, certainly in the UK, they're, they're you know, tend to be physical education teachers who get sex education's in their remit. So that's what they do. Oh, and they have yeah. shame around it. And they're embarrassed to talk about it. They certainly didn't want to talk about it with me as a parent in terms of what he's <laughs> teaching them. They do not want to say those words. And it's, yeah. it's, it's interesting because they pass on it, unintentionally, but they pass on that, that shame of, you know, kind of where where we can where we can discuss things, and also I think they're sometimes worried about their job. You know, like how much are they allowed to say? Um, definitely a thing. But how do you how how do we get how do we shed that shame around it? What needs to happen? Well, I think we need to be giving different messages because if if we look at you know ratings, so we're going to rate something R, where you have two people having consensual sexual activity but we're going to show something where someone gets a head chopped off or they get shot. Mm. You know, it's this really strange standard that, you know, violence is, I wouldn't say okay, but not as frowned upon as natural human sexuality. It's like this, you know, we wouldn't all be here if it wasn't for sex. Mm. And there's so many messages out there that inform shame. And some of it is around the you know, you can't watch this because this is an adult thing. We're sexual beings from birth till death. Mm. You know, babies touch themselves because it feels good. You know, children may rub against your know, toys or their pillow because it feels good. Mm. They may touch themselves to self-soothe. It's a natural part of who we are as human beings, but our society has all these rules and regulations and and all these things you can and cannot do and gives this really strong message that there's something about it that's not okay mm. and it's taboo and we can't talk about it yeah certainly things have changed a lot um in the time that i've been doing sexuality education which would be about 20 years now but there's still a long way to go and i was recently asked to 
talk to a, a group of young people who were part of our local council and they were wanting to advocate for some more messages. And the two main things that they wanted in their sexuality education were around consent and pleasure. Mm-hmm. So the consent information they would get in the healthy relationship stuff, so talking about domestic violence and what are healthy and not healthy relationships, but they weren't getting it in the sexuality education and they certainly weren't, get, weren't getting pleasure. So we sort of armed them with some things that they could do so that they could advocate as young people for the kind of sexuality education that they wanted. And I think that's the kind of things we need to do. We need to change the messages that our young people are getting. And I think you're right that for teachers, sometimes they are scared about what can I or can I not say. They're also a different generation who had their own messages around sex. And they're not really trained to do it. Uh, It's the same here in Australia. It is our health and PE teachers who often teach it unless they pay someone external to come in, which was what I would do. And I would go into the staff room at lunchtime and, oh, the sex lady's here. And we're very much about trying to encourage the staff to take on what we call the whole of school approach, Mm -hmm. that sexuality education was embedded in everything that they did, you know, Johnny's cats had kittens. Let's talk about how that happens. Mm -hmm. There's something in the paper about someone approaching children in a park. Let's talk about protective behaviours. Teachers are with the children so long. There are so many opportunities for education that imagine if every teacher did five to ten minutes a day how much sexuality education children would have Mm -hmm. rather than me coming in three days in a row for an hour each time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And quite often you're, you're speaking to kids who it's a little bit too late for some of the information or you're speaking to kids who are thinking about playing soccer at lunchtime um, and not wanting to listen because my body's not making those changes that lady's talking about. And then six months down the track, they're going, oh, what did she say? Because something's happening now. Because yeah. it wasn't relevant to them at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that would make a big difference if we could educate all teachers to bring sexuality education into conversations throughout the day. If we're talking about the body and we're talking about the digestive system and the cardiovascular system, let's talk about the reproductive system. Don't leave it to a special person to come in and have a special conversation in a special class. Yeah. And so that brings a message. Yeah. yeah, it does. But parents need to take that and that responsibility as well. So I think a lot of oh, definitely. people want to talk about it because it's uncomfortable. It's their own children. They don't want to be thinking about their children having sexual pleasure because, again, there's some shame in that. Mm. So, And they don't want their children to be thinking about them having sex. Yeah. If I talk to my children, and this is, I had a teacher actually say to me, if I, I do this class, they will think about me having sex. And I, what, so it's all right for them to think about me having sex, (laughs) you know, it's like you are a human being and you have sex and that's okay. I think there's a lot of education to be done with parents and certainly there are a lot more resources and websites and things like that now that are providing that education to parents. And I know we used to go in and do a parent session before we saw the children. Mm. This is what we're going to talk to your children about. Mm. These are the these are the things that you can do at home. 
but I know that that doesn't always happen with every education that children get in schools. Well, the downside is that then children are going to learn about this online. Yes. And there's this, you know, that, that you can't go online now without having some bombarding of, you know, some pornography of some sort. And then, of course, the messages of that are are entirely different of, you know, it's not the romantic movie that we're now emulating. It's now the porn that we're emulating. Whether exactly. that brings us pleasure or not, that's what I'm supposed to be doing. And I'm supposed to be screaming in this way or in this position or, or you know, whatever it is. And I'm supposed to be, and, and how often do we see a condom used in porn? Mm -hmm. yeah. How often do we see females actually engaging in pleasure? Mm -hmm. How often do we see coercion? How often do we see no negotiation, no conversation, no communication? And um, certainly, you know, there have been incidences um, of young women, young girls, girls in their early teens engaging in anal sex because they've seen it or the boys have seen it in pornography. No preparation. And they're doing incredible damage to their bodies because their bodies aren't ready. They're, they haven't, they're not mature enough. And they haven't prepared themselves in the right way. Um, but they've got this skewed view of what sex is supposed to be like. Probably in a different way to the skewed view that I had sex about what sex yeah. was supposed to be like. But it's not reality. So what we, what we need to do now is teach our young people porn literacy. Right. Teaching them to evaluate what they're seeing. Is this real? Is this not real? These people are actors. You know, and, and then you were talking about, we've um, talked about body image before, and it's that, oh, well, my vulva needs to look like that. Most women of my era never saw another woman's vulva. Mm. So now all these young women are seeing all of these, you know, modified vulvas that all look the same because this is what the porn industry wants. Um, this is why people don't have pubic hair anymore. And this is why we're seeing such an increase in young women in particular having these unrealistic unrealistic expectations of what their bodies are supposed to look like. But also young men, my penis isn't as big as the guy I saw in the movie. Mm. You know, um, I worked with a woman who had had relationships only with men who were refugees. Mm. And they, in their culture, there was a particular person that taught them about sex. Mm -hmm. But because they were refugees, they did it with an uncle or their father. They didn't have these men. So they learnt from porn. So she came to me because she wasn't multi-orgasmic, she wasn't squirting, mm. and she wasn't having an orgasm within the first five seconds. Right. So yeah. her partners thought that that's what, and these were adults, mm. they thought that that's what sex was about. So then she thought there was something wrong with her. Mm. And a young man in his 20s that thought that he had premature ejaculation because he was only lasting 15 minutes, not 40. Right. So premature ejaculation is less than two minutes from penetration. Yeah. So he was very relieved when he found out that, you know, he was actually going above and beyond <laughs> because the <laughs> average is about seven minutes. Yeah. yeah. So there's still a lot to battle with this misinformation that's out there. Yeah. And the fact that the message that penetrative sex is the goal. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm, the be all and end all, or PIV, penis in vagina sex. Yeah. That's, and we, we know from research that that's probably not necessarily the most pleasurable for the majority of women. Mm -hmm. They're not getting enough clitoral stimulation. They may not orgasm. 
and um, then she feels like there's something wrong with her. He feels like there's something wrong with him and people are set up for these unrealistic expectations of how sex is supposed to be. Um, the research has shown that um, lesbians have the most satisfying sex and there's no penises involved in that. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's an understanding of a female body. There is. Uh, and certainly um, they will take longer and it's more about pleasure and it's not just about the goal of orgasm. I like to talk to people about it's the journey, not necessarily the destination. Yeah. That orgasm is not necessarily the holy grail. You can get an incredible amount of pleasure and not have an orgasm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think the, um, the thing that you were saying about the idea that there is a that penetrative sex is the be all and end all of of all fascinations when it comes to human expression the end goal is always seems to be you know seems to be penetration and even within queer circles we see that quite a lot there's you know there's a, mm. a desire amongst there's a theory and a belief that amongst gay men that the only form of codified sexual contact involves penetration mm. and that's something that's kind of been fought back against over the years and I've seen it more and more as as we kind of move on that the idea of codifying sexuality as being one specific act between certain people is still kind of very much embedded um how do you very think much. go about sort of altering that perspective and how do you think we further that um into a broader aspect and a broader idea of of what that can encompass um I think well, I, I want to take a step back to something that we had happening here in Australia, and that was the fact that um, anal sex had a different age of consent. Yeah. And people used to say gay sex. Yeah. And I would spend my time going, you know what? Gay people don't own anal sex. Mm -hmm. Anybody can have it, and it's illegal for any any genders, <laughs> you know. Uh, and that was, even though that law was just ridiculous and it's now been changed, it gave that opportunity for conversation about yeah. no it's not gay sex that's illegal it is anal sex and you know straight people can enjoy anal sex too and mm -hmm. lesbians can enjoy anal sex and it's not the be all and end all and if a straight man wants to engage in anal sex and wants his partner to peg him it does not mean he's gay mm -hmm. and they're the conversations that we need to have mm -hmm. that a particular type of activity does not delineate your sexuality mm -hmm. and that Straight men can enjoy anal sex. Not all lesbians want to scissor or have oral sex. <laughs> that the things you enjoy are the things you enjoy and it doesn't dictate your sexuality or your gender. Yeah. And I think as we get more of that information out there, that will start to shift yeah. some of those ideas. Yeah. I was, um, I certainly thought when you were talking about, you know, teachers and parents' responsibilities and stuff, uh, a little bit earlier it was certainly you know I mean I grew up at the I was in education at the time when it was illegal for uh, teachers to talk about gay people in any positive fashion mm -hmm. so I had occasionally teachers cry because they couldn't say something they wanted to say in support of something and would have to leave a room um, my favorite sexual education uh, seminar was the one that the science teacher walked in on asked was asked one question one question so what is anal sex? Boom. Never came back. Wow. Never came back. And that I must have been so incredibly hard as an yeah. educator to have yeah. this information and knowledge and not be able to share it when you know mm -hmm. that those young people needed it. Yeah. And I think, um, I mean, 
there's the the knock-on effect of that as well as like it's it's hard for them because they want to be able to say something or not in his case he just did not <laughs> want to talk <laughs> I got the feeling he did not want to be there at all um but the knock-on effect is that then the the person who asked that question was doing it to get a rise the people who yeah. could potentially have wanted to understand something about that especially the you know not necessarily just the the burgeoning queer students but anybody else in that room was immediately negated any form of further discussion. And that's literally what happened. Nobody else talked and that was it. We didn't get another yeah. class, we didn't get another class. And that kind of reaction then stigmatizes, there must be something wrong with it. We can't exactly. talk about it. So there must be something wrong with it. Yeah, exactly. That's a shame. It is that's a real shame. Get, that's mm. where we get into, into problems is when we have that, that ignorance. So, yeah. so yes. cabaret and in particular burlesque is, is, is or can be fairly sexual in a suggestive way mm -hmm. and in a pleasurable mm -hmm. way and it's very different for anybody who hasn't been to a, a burlesque show um that you might be imagining it's more like a strip club mm -hmm. isn't. i mean yeah. there's some some parallels there but it, it is it is much more around the expression of of pleasure or pain or mm. or or whatever that is and i think you know we the more that we can feel comfortable in our body to express ourselves mm. then that's when we start to to understand sensuality of even just things that we talk quite a lot about body tracing you know mm. just just yeah. being able to touch ourselves and being able to feel confident and and good and accepting and appreciative of our bodies mm. but so often and i i actually attended um uh, burlesque classes about 12 months ago and it was just wonderful and the the majority of the class were older women, middle-aged to, you know, 40s, 50s. There were a couple of younger women. But to watch their confidence grow, mm -hmm. they were doing something for themselves. This wasn't about anybody else. Mm -hmm. This was about them getting in touch with their own bodies and their own sensuality. And someone who was really nervous and giggling and, oh, I don't know what to do. And then seeing them strut across that classroom and just move with such confidence and such sensuality uh, was absolutely amazing. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, um, I, I love watching because I had the same transformation. I, I love watching uh, when people put on heels and mm -hmm. walk and how different that is. And that, that could be even, you know, little tiny heels or, but just the, the difference in, in how women walk. And I, uh, my, my son had a couple of friends here um, a while ago and I, one of them put on my heels and said, this is a game changer. Like I'm a totally different person. This is just a pair of boots. Do you know, it's just a pair of yeah. It is transformational. And I think, you know, the more that we can get in touch with our bodies and feel good about our bodies, because what, for a lot of people that might be listening, it, they'd be saying, but that's a million miles away. It's one thing to have the education and be able to talk about it, mm. but that's a million miles away being able to say, this is how I like to be touched, or this is how, this is what mm -hmm. I enjoy, you know, um, or even trying to figure out what you enjoy. Well, that's the first step, isn't it? You've got to work out what you enjoy before you can tell somebody else. Exactly. <laughs>